once again Wheel of Names we should get sponsored by wheelofnames.com <laughs> let's go we should probably tag them in one of the tweets if they have a Twitter account if they have a Twitter account We have a winner. Models. Very well. Thank you once again for joining us for the Testing Peers podcast. Tonight, we're going to be talking about models because you just heard me say that. My name's Chris Armstrong and I'm joined tonight by the usual crew, Russell Cracksford. Aloha. Simon Pryor. Hello. David Maynard. Oh, yeah. So, before we begin, we want to say a special thank you to Saffron QA, who are continuing sponsoring us. Saffron QA is a specialist in testing and recruitment, offering permanent, contract, and newly developed retained recruitment services. More details can be found in the show notes, or please reach out to Ben of Saffron QA directly to find out more. Over for some delightful banter, I hope. David. Yeah, so tonight we're going to be talking about models. So I thought we'd go down sort of an ideal topic for Russell, because hopefully it'll be a good memory for this. So talking about models is cars. What was the first make and model and colour of the first car that you owned? So Russell, start with you. Yeah, that was easy for me then. So it was a Vauxhall Astra. I think it was like a 1997 version and it was in red. And when I bought it, I found out it had a hole in the petrol tank. So the first thing I did was replace the petrol tank, which cost me almost as much money as the car did. That's always the way. Simon? I had a 2010 Vauxhall Corsa. It was silver. Yeah. So <laughs> <It was a laughs> relatively, relatively new car. Um, to, after my five attempts to pass my test, I was just uh, happy to get my own car. How does it? it served me well for about two years, and then we decided that with children, we needed a bigger car. Very good. Chris? I had a 1987 Peugeot 309. Uh, it was there for a chair. It was a metallic blue. By the time I killed it, it had done 209,000 miles. It was a four-speed, 1.1-litre engine. When you drove beyond about 45 miles an hour, the engine kind of started shaking. The window started winding itself down. You could unlock it by just jimmying the handle. There was no rev counter, no clock. The stereo got stolen, so one of them didn't exist. And um, the sunroof, which it had, used to leak. So it was awesome. We called it the Beast. Very good. Uh, my first car was a red Mini Metro. It had go faster stripes down the side. It didn't make it go any faster, but it was. I was going to ask. It was a. It was a lovely car uh, for what I could afford at the time, which was very good. Cool. And a bit, a bit like you, Chris, it didn't have any mod cons. It was very basic. Uh, honestly, nowadays my daughter's got her first car. And it has air conditioning in it, although it's not working very well. I tell her that actually in the good old days, air conditioning was winding down the windows and driving as fast as you could in order to. I, was say, <laughs> to I don't think there was a, ever an advanced version of features for metros. I think you would have had to have <laughs> customized it to have advanced features. It was known for its ability to deliver without frills. Indeed. And it certainly did that. Excellent. So we're going to talk about models. Chris, did you want to introduce this topic today? Well, obviously, when we first talked about models, I thought we were talking about supermodels, you know, David Beckham and, and such. But obviously, really, we were talking about models that are out there, readily available for people to see and consume. Quite often, they look work brilliantly as marketing things or blog posts and talks that people demonstrate that they have had a problem 
they have created a solution to that problem and they want to share that with the world. Sometimes they even like to monetize it with a bit of a ladder. Who knows? I super, super appreciate people sharing those things. That's awesome. Please keep on sharing things. My problem personally with models, and I'm starting with a rant, is when people misinterpret the context. Either they don't understand the context from whence it came, or they just don't get it. They haven't considered it, and they are trying to apply someone else's context solution to their context, to their own. And it does my little head in greatly. And we mentioned it in the agility episode the other week, like the Spotify model, which even Spotify don't do. I've seen companies try to adopt bits of that. It's so frustrating. I don't want to rant the whole time, but have we seen examples of any models that we think are brilliant models? We don't think they're brilliant, but we've seen people try to adopt them. And have we ever seen a successful adoption of someone else's model in their context? I've certainly seen several people try and showcase the Spotify model. Look, we made the Spotify model work for us. And great, there probably are companies that have taken it at face value and, and worked with it and made it work. But as you said, Chris, Spotify don't even use the Spotify model anymore. They've evolved away from it. And I think that's the key thing for me is models are a good starting point sometimes. And then you evolve away from them depending on on your circumstances. I can't think of any particular model that I've seen work successfully. I did create my own model for the cultural quality, which I still use now. And that's only two or three years old. So I'm guessing that's that's, that's allowed. Link to that post in the show notes, <laughs> listeners. So yeah, that's the only real example I can think of off the top of my head. I don't have any particular examples of particular models that I know that people have tried to fit into their companies, but I agree that context is the most important thing. And also I think that people sort of hear, they like labels. They like to hear these particular things in their models. And so therefore trying to get or fit them into the company, they like to just go, Oh, we're, we're following this particular model. We're, we're doing this sort of thing, but it's, important as we said is context we should adapt them or pick the best bits of that particular model to allow us the greatest chance of success because otherwise the worst thing that can do is we adopt something as we have done with with various things and we say oh it's it's useless because it it hasn't worked but they don't realize that actually as chris said we're trying to retrofit it into a context that is not actually there and it's the same with things like tools whatever you know you have sales things they go oh it's used by all these big companies and that's all very well but actually what they're doing might be very different to to something else and so therefore it might not necessarily work in exactly the same way it's interesting to figure out what is a model and a model is kind of an abstraction that's the whole point of it it's trying to make something that's generally quite complicated into a simple thing to absorb and obviously anything that's abstracted you lose the detail that's part of the reason why you abstract it is to get an idea across to get the concept across but not necessarily the implementation detail, the strengths, the weaknesses, and things like that. It is generally about principle. So talk about the Spotify model. People see the kind of the weight split. They don't see all the intricacies and all the other processes that go with it and the fact that it was evolving and it was a snapshot time. We probably haven't talked about yet, but I'm sure we will get on to things like testing pyramid or the testing Rubik's cubes and testing circles. There's all sorts of different concepts around those. And they were all abstractions of ideas to try and make it easy to adopt the principles that they were trying to sell in their context. And often we try to implement the model forgetting it's an abstraction, forgetting that context. So we do it, but without getting the results or without understanding it, without the benefit necessarily. 
because we're so absorbed by the concept, by this pattern, this picture, often models are images, that we forget what it's trying to achieve, the purpose, the goal, you know, Scrum. I use that one as a classic. There's a models, lots of models within Scrum, but you forget actually it's the Agile principles. It's the Agile sort of manifesto it's trying to achieve. It's not Scrum. It's trying to prove no contract negotiation, working closely with people. It's those principles is really what it's trying to do, but it's a model to get there. A good example, I like analogies and using Russell as an example in architects, architects can come up with an idea and they produce a model of what the building will look like. And exactly as you said, Russell, it has no context. It's showing exactly what the planned look of that is. There's no context of cost. There's no context of time. There's no context of other things surrounding it. It is just an example of what the vision is going to be. And so therefore you then need to take the detail to make sure that it's actually has the ability to be built to the specification that was originally thought of by the architect. In an architectural sense, you get quantitative surveyors, you get builders, you get engineers, you get planners, you get quite a lot of other people involved to make that vision a reality. I completely agree with what David's just saying. I think models are a really good way of bringing your idea to life. I've always tried to make them work in an internal environment. I've never been, apart from the one I blogged about, I've created models for our testing purposes for the team to work on and help us improve the way we're doing testing for that particular instance. And I've created them in the past, whether it be an adaptation of the, the test pyramid, because we're, we're doing things slightly different way, but keeping it internal and keeping it for that internal context only. I think sometimes the problem comes when we, sh- we, we share them wider and think that other people are going to adapt them in the exact same way, especially when, when they're used, like you mentioned about Agile and how that's become a more monetized system. Before this, I, I Googled software testing models and the first page of models is agile testing, waterfall model, <laughs> V model. So it's it's all the different methodologies. So again, it's what do we class as a model? What's actually a model for our testing? What's a methodology to do our testing as part of? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a minefield to try and find out the right ideas that we're looking for. Do you touch on a point though that's quite important because let's face it, we now have a voice It doesn't mean that we necessarily carry greater credibility or less than others, but we have a platform and we have a voice. And at that point, we now have to be conscious and considerate of what we are saying and what that may or may not do to influence the way that people approach their work in their own context. It's like a bit of sort of social consciousness in in what we do. We obviously all have jobs that we do and we do things and we are conscious and careful not to be doing anything that would breach problems with customers or or internal sorts of things that's sometimes quite hard because sometimes you might have a really useful thing to share but on a platform it's not great but also like if i have found a solution to something that is really exciting to be able to sort of present those things but on the topic of context i guess that's where we've got to try and find a, a way of presenting stuff where we're really stressing the point that this applies to this, not that. And I don't know if the way some models are, often it's like Chinese whispers, like second, third, fourth hand stuff's getting passed around. I think we've all seen Dan Ashby's continuous testing in the, in the DevOps loop that people have adopted and added to their own slide decks. There's power in, in it in something that's visual, more so than anything else. Thank goodness Dan Ashby exists in the world. Hi, Dan. Thank you very much. You exist. Like the way you visualize the things that you are saying 
make it so easy for people to talk through things. But even still, I can see his visualizations being misused, misinterpreted. Yeah, yeah agreed. Even though it came with a blog post that I will share in the show notes some six years ago that talked about where we should be testing in DevOps. If something gets published, it's really easy for it to be misattributed and placed in the wrong space. And, and I don't think there's really a way of protecting that sort of IP. I don't think that really exists. But how can we move past this whole world where there is a model and you must apply it? Like how can we how can we do it so that that we're not trying to uh, there is a one correct answer? Chase the rainbow. Yeah, completely agree. I think this is where it's more about helping people, coaching p- people encouraging them to create their own models for their own context by all means learn from some of the models that dan and others have done but think about how you're doing it particularly in your environment and if visualization works for you then create a model that works for your environment communicate it with the people you need to communicate it with in a way that they all buy into it they get it as well they get excited about it they can learn from it and together you work with it it needs to be less about i'm going to take that model i saw on google and copy it exactly and try and replicate exactly how that was used in that scenario because your scenario inevitably is different and it really is about finding a way to bring the best pieces of that and maybe some best pieces of somewhere else and plugging it together and creating your own but don't be afraid to use your own ideas as well it's not just about pulling models apart and putting them together it's a bit like taking a piece of lego you might build an airplane in one box you might build a car in another but actually you want a boat So you're going to take the best bits from both and plug it together and use your own imagination to create the model you want. And that's really what you need to do for your own scenario. Yeah, I think it's always difficult, though, because, again, we've mentioned before about imposter syndrome and also trying to sort of persuade our leaders in order to instill confidence in our ideas of models. And sometimes often work gets in the way, our actual project work or stuff gets in the way. So therefore, we might not necessarily always have the time to hone things and so therefore often we go down the road of least resistance and try and pick up a ready-made model i know that's most likely the wrong thing but it's important to recognize that actually things shouldn't be taken just out of the box we need to adapt it to our own context as we say and going back to chris's point about people do like things visualized but if you just look as you know russell mentioned before the test the testing pyramid if you just search for testing pyramid you get so many different flavors in that respect you you have so many options so that you can almost pick anything and it'll be the right context for completely different reasons exactly that i mean there's just opening google now you type in test automation pyramid there's the three step automation pyramid there's the agile test automation period there's a five layer automation pyramid there's ones that include manual testing all the way down it and then there's obviously the ice cream cone as well. Again, everyone's taking it. And the custard slice. And the custard slice, yes. Can I have a test here and say it's not a pyramid? I agree. 99.9% it's a triangle. 9% of these images, it's a triangle. <laughs> yes. Just, and again, this is, can't no, no, you're absolutely right. This is exactly part of the thing is it was designed and it worked for one person in one scenario. It's been adopted. I'm sure there's many people that have used the test automation pyramid and got some level of success out of it. I think we're a bit of criticism of models at the moment. I think models are very helpful. They share information, they share ideas. It goes back to that concept of what's behind the idea. The testing pyramid yeah. is a classic one of not just testing at the end. It's what it's yes, trying to talk about. It's normally trying to talk about quantity of tests and things like that. And actually you have lots of little ones 
at the bottom and fewer at the top. And the principles of it make a lot of sense. How you can interpret how you can deliver that, if you can deliver that, if it's the right thing to deliver, or questions you should ask before you try and pitch that pyramid or version of it, as you say. And I think that's the thing that we, there's two sides. To this. So we've got to be careful about what we put out there as models. But we as consumers, which we are both consumers and providers, we've got to be conscious of how we consume models. So what we take out of it, how we share it to our teams. And we're in a privileged position. As Chris said, we are speaking on a podcast here, but we also have our own teams own people that listen to us. And we've got to kind of make sure that we understand not to use things blindly. Blind use of models is terrible, but models do teach us things. They give us concepts, they give us ideas. It's how I learned to do the times table was looking at models and things like that. They do help. They're shortcuts so often. They're heuristics in many ways. Um, They do get you to an answer, but you can't use a heuristic blindly either. Um, You've got to kind of use your own skills, your knowledge to interpret it, to get the value. Otherwise you're copying pasting, which is not that intelligent. It's not that sensible. You can't interpret it right. You can do more damage than good. You can follow lots of principles and lots of ideas. Like how many bad Scrum implementations we've ever seen by just reading a guide without thinking about what's behind it, what's the motivation. I think we can all put our hands up and say we've seen it. And it goes, that's exactly the same sort of thing that happens with every sort of model that's out there. And the model itself is not bad. It's just how it's perceived, how it's used. And it's partly how they get taken out of context and partly how people forget the basis of what the model is. My rant's now over. That's two of you ranted. It's a good rant. Do you want to hear something that I wrote once and I'm going to read to you because Chris's Story Corner is always an exciting segment of the show. Oh, we've missed Chris's Story Corner. Settle in. It's not too long, my friends. I was say, is this five minutes or 20? Oh, no, it's less than that. So I, I wrote this. Many places wanting to operate as thought leaders in this space have often linear models that are built to solve problems, which is great, but they aren't going to be applicable in others' contexts. Rather than utilizing models or best practices, I believe as leaders in this space, it is our responsibility to be at the forefront of the conversations and tooling in an ever-evolving industry. The analogy of giving a fish to feed someone for a day or to teach them to fish so they can feed themselves is ultimately a story of sustainability and sustainable relevance in software quality is what must drive us. This means no egos. It means quality culture that promotes learning, humility, accountability, celebration, creativity, discipline, experimentation, and at its core, agility. I got a thumbs up from Russell, everybody. One David. See, Simon's on the fence. Oh, two thumbs up. But it works well on a podcast, doesn't it? I honestly believe that there are, we, we are flooded. We are spoiled for choice. It's an embarrassment of riches when we go looking for solutions to problems. And, and ultimately, if we aren't given the culture in which we work in, where we can adopt things, we can take time out to experiment, um, and where we can really discuss things in an open and honest discourse. And if we have to do it in isolation, where we can't share and interact with others, then we may well set ourselves up to fail. And we need to have conversations about these things regularly in order to be able to achieve clarity and also never settle for something that was published 10, 15, 20 years ago and treat that as the only way. Now, we've talked about agility, right? When did they write the, uh, the manifesto and those parts? We should challenge things. We shouldn't just accept things at face value. And the point of context is so important. The way, the way I try to describe this is my son was playing a computer game. He completed it, or at least he thought he had. A 
but he got to the end and discovered there was a bunch of other stuff to unlock that he couldn't do if he didn't go back and actually not take the quickest path through the game. He took the shortcut and he discovered a whole bunch of technical debt that he had to go back and work his way through in order to be able to unlock the future potential for stuff. That's really true. Sometimes the shortest route isn't the right thing. And sometimes it's cool. Like if your end goal is just to get to the end, great. But if you want to get to the end and be able to achieve other things, you need to do those other things. What you mentioned was sustainability, wasn't it? Before, yes. if you can achieve sustainable success, then you probably need to evolve things. If you want to get a release out the door and not worry about the consequences, then implementing a model someone else has got is probably the shortest route to that goal. It's why I, I really enjoyed when um, Xbox introduced XP into games because it forced players not to just try to get to the end. It's encouraged them to go and explore other sorts of things for themselves. I've got a massive segue at this point, but yes, the coverage metrics, the sustainability point is really important because it's about giving people the tools to be able to identify things for themselves and apply them to the context that they know, look for those patterns, understand some people have solved problems in this way. Some people have solved problems in that way and use that information to make the right decisions yourself. It's interesting because that's the difference between thought leadership and thought following, if that makes sense. It's important to recognise, keep saying it, our context, but our working practices and picking those things that we think that might get the success within our context and recognising that in ourselves. So tr- trying to force other models on ourselves, we should evolve our working practices in order to make sure that there is a success at the end. From my experience and my learnings along the way with models, it's a retrospective thing. You'll do something once, you'll try it. Like your son, Chris, doing the video game. It's then only going back that you then realise, you know, actually there's other ways I can do this. There's other ways I can improve. And that's where the model comes from. At least in my eyes, it's rare for a model to be devised before you do anything. It's usually you go from your experience on how you've tried things a couple of ways and then you've you've started drawing conclusions and you've pulled things together and actually now this is an approach that we can now use. That's how you get the most buy-in as well because you can talk from the experience of how you've brought it together using we were testing it this way and we, we found this. We then went back and we looked at it. We, we found these other things and actually we come together with this model. And, and that's, that's a really good organic way of developing a model that people are going to buy into, especially in your own context, because everyone's living it with you and it, it works well for you. So what are your feelings about maturity models? I did not expect you to go there next. <laughs> I think they are a very... What's the right word, politically correct way of phrasing this? I think they have a place. I don't think they have much value. It is interesting to see where you can improve, you know, what is out there and so on. But constantly measuring your sense of maturity and things like that is a dangerous game because it's what's right for you, ultimately. But it doesn't mean that you can't spot problems and things. But I hate the kind of lift and shift model of copying and paste maturity models from the internet and not actually relating it to the context. That drives me insane. It's about achieving the goals that you want, not someone else's opinion of what maturity is. I struggle with maturity models from the respect of it's someone else assessing against a standard checklist of whether you meet the criteria. And actually, again, we've talked about this before. Everybody's context is different. If you're doing test plans and test strategies in a different way, but it works for you, then that should be okay. Just because you're not following the the checklist or the standards that are part of maturity model, that doesn't mean you get knocked down from a grade four to a grade three and therefore consultants or companies are not going to want to use you as a consultancy or whatever else 
it's frustrating. I, I can see in some respects when there's compliance and that kind of thing, I can see how maturity models can be important. But generally, I, I struggle struggle with their value. Yeah, you're right. There's a reason these things exist. Um, and hopefully that reason isn't to make money and go through certification cycles. But I think I've viewed these things differently as I've, as I've got more experience, which is mostly the liberating sense that a model is there as a reference. There is useful information in those things. And I'm, it's great to sort of see what sort of things to consider. But I know that in my context, I can just dismiss that thing and just take the meat that's there and apply that to where I am. But I don't know if that's necessarily how it's always presented. I do hate the box checking exercises for things. I understand there's a time and a place for them, but to know, and also, I guess this is for leaders and managers and people who are asking people to go through these things to listen to. Please understand that making people do stuff that isn't relevant is pointless half the time, if not more. And listen to the people who actually have taken the time to look, register, understand where they are and what's the right sort of thing to do it give them the platform to be able to articulate those things and trust your people to make those decisions when they've put in the effort to go and learn about them this is the thing though maturity models can listen to those things chris they don't always most of them when you lift and shift them are standard models applied in a standard way but i not so long ago wrote one for a client with them to figure out what they thought was important what they deemed what their goals were and how to compare their teams to each other about making sure practices were shared across it to a little degree. So where teams were roughly related to each other, but not entirely, but kind of almost the journey they wanted to go on. And now personally, that was a maturity model. It was an effect checking how mature different teams were almost against each other, um, not purely against each other, but against their kind of aspirations. Now to my head, that wasn't too bad because it was customized for them. It was built around them. But if I'd applied just a copy and paste jobby from the internet, it would have been completely irrelevant to them, would have taken them down a path that may not be relevant at all and would have been absolutely not worth the paper it was written on. Instead, it took a lot more time, a lot more effort, but hopefully it would give some value for a short period of time because guess what? That maturity goal will be different now. I wrote that six months ago for them. Yeah. They'll be moved on. What their aspirations are will be different. The development practice will be different. The technology is different. So it's never static either. Uh, yeah, I do hate kind of measuring yourself against this goalpost and comparing your company to others against a unrealistic or unsensible it's that madness. Yeah. you're right and, and actually i think what you just said russell I, there is value in a customized maturity model to help you as a team improve from a base level to a, a higher level of productivity and, and and collaboration and all that good stuff i agree it's, it's the out of the box standard industry standard which is another phrase i hate form of maturity model that, I didn't even mention that, best practices yet. Oh. It just reeks of we're going to try and measure you and make you the same as every other company that reached the same grade. Whereas actually the beauty is that everyone works in different ways and they have different goals and different objectives and different business values. And, you know, they find a way that works for them. We should celebrate that. We should celebrate people that are coming up with models. We should celebrate the fact that people are finding solutions to problems yeah. and, and sharing those things are excellent. I really think that the problem is when it's presented as you must do this thing and when it is interpreted as I must do that thing. Let's celebrate and encourage these things. If I had the ability to visualize some of these great models, I would love to. And I, I'm so passionately happy and proud of the people that have created these things that I've been able to reference 
in my career i'm so pleased but i just hate when they're misinterpreted it makes my blood boil completely agree and i think for me the beauty of models is don't be afraid like you say creating them is is one thing but don't be afraid for them to fail don't be scared to try and learn something from it and evolve it because i can guarantee you i mean looking at google and the amount of models that dan ashby's done over the years i'm sure he didn't come up with them first time i'm sure all of them were work over a period of time and the same for anyone else that's created models it's not something they they you know wake up one morning draw the model that's it finalized i'll write a blog and put it out it's, it's that's not generally how it works it's it's all about learning evolving seeing it fail improving it moving forward there are two things there that i would like to pick up on going about the uh, failing and linking it to chris's son playing the computer game you know when you play a computer game it isn't just plain sailing you don't just play it and go through often it has an element of failure as part of it. You go back to the start or you go back, you have to redo certain things that are slightly more tricky. And that's exactly what, what we're talking about. You know, there, are, there will be times when there are tricky things and how we then change the model or move around in order to, to do it. I'd also like to pick up on the point about sharing it. It's that I love hearing about people's stories and, you know, it's like anything. We should take out the things that we are we find important from that in order to then allow ourselves to progress and use those good ideas in order to put into practice the main key things. I wonder if there's anything we could learn from model-based testing, different form of models, but how we utilize them in order to kind of generate ideas of how systems and things are meant to work. They are not the be-all and end-all, they are a tool and they're there to help you, to make enable you, for want of a better phrase, but you need to use them with knowledge and skills. Otherwise, it's worthless, in effect. If you don't put something into the model, or put enough effort into it, then you, you're just chaining chaos and uselessness. But I think going into that route and going down that model-based testing route is probably a conversation for a different day. I think you're probably right. It's a good topic to, to discuss, and it's one I've explored briefly over the years, but never really dived into deeply. So maybe it's an opportunity to learn as well. So um, that sounds like a good topic for another day. On that note... Thank you guys for your discussion tonight. Um, that was a very enjoyable conversation. If you have any thoughts on models that you recommend that we should look at um, that might work in our context, then please reach out, share. If you want to get in touch, it's contact us at testingpeers.com or at testingpeers on most of the socials. And thank you to Saffron QA for continuing to sponsor us. And we really appreciate the support going forward. Thank you very much again for listening and we'll speak to you again soon. For now, it's goodbye from the testing peers. Goodbye. Goodbye.